and at that point we were taken for another round of questioning, this time related to our allegedly being members of Mossad. The fact of the matter is, we are coming from a country that experiences terror daily. Our purpose was to document the event. Hey friends, Sean from SGT Report here. That was the dancing Israelis who were returned to Israel after 9-11 where they admitted their purpose was to document the event. This important conversation with author James Perloff is meant to share the true history of the terror emanating from Israel for so very long. Hey friends, welcome back. Thank you so very much for tuning in. It's Sean from SGT Report here. Guys, we're going to cover what's happening between Israel and Palestine because it's one of the world's biggest stories right now. And in one second, I'm going to play a clip from our friend Max Egan's latest video. And I think everybody needs to understand exactly what's going on in this world. To that end, we have James Perloff, author and friend of Truth, back on the show to help us break it all down. James, how are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, got a little little bit of a cold lately, but my so my throat's a little bit lower than usual, my voice, but uh, hopefully it'll hold up during the program. All righty. Well, you're going to take us through your latest article here from the Arab platoon to Hamas, Israel's Abu Nadal strategy. But mm -hmm. I just want to set the stage and then I'm going to just turn you loose. Okay. Nobody needs to hear me blather about this stuff. You're the expert. So we're going to talk about the problem with Zionism and what's really going on here. But uh, I want to play this first from Max Egan. In the eyes of the system, we are all Palestinians. I want you guys to let that sink in while our borders are wide open and they push a vaccine, a bioweapon masquerading as a vaccine on humanity. Listen to this. Israel killed its own people. Israel admits Apache helicopters fired on their own civilians running from the Supernova Music Festival. Tobal Escapa, the security coordinator at Kibbutz Be'eri, said Israeli commanders made difficult decisions, including shelling houses on their occupants to eliminate the terrorists along with the hostages. Israel's military released footage showing hundreds of scorched cars moved from the Nova Music Festival, which it claims that Hamas attacked. The cars have been targeted with highly destructive weapons that Hamas does not own. An IDF soldier admits it was the Israeli who killed and raped their women, not Hamas. <laughs> This all falls under the Hannibal Directive. So what is it? The Hannibal Directive is a top-secret Israeli order of the General Staff, which was first devised in 1986. Its purpose was to prevent the enemy from escaping with a soldier, even if it meant endangering that soldier or any civilians. It was last executed in 2014, known in Israel as Operation Protective Edge, which killed 72 Israelis and over 2,000 Palestinians. We see it being implemented now. Israel doesn't like having hostages. So, let's wrap this up. First, the IDF used aircraft and tanks to bomb Israeli houses that contained hostages instead of negotiating professionally, which caused the massacre. Israel was so humiliated on October 7th that they panicked and slaughtered their own people. The IDF propaganda machine then generated fake news to spread through their proxies like Ben Shapiro to generate sympathy for Israel, not to mention terrible acting. Uh, incoming. These lies are still repeated today with no remorse. The photos of burned bodies came from Hellfire drones or JDAMs. This is who you support, who you fund, who you cheer for, those who would kill you in a heartbeat. All right, we'll pause it right there. Guys, again, I am not taking sides here. We're just sharing the truth, the truth that the mainstream horror mockingbird Rothschild media refuses to share. 
with the American people. And frankly, a lot of the media in the Western world, they just choose to paint the picture however they see fit. And we're going to break that all down today with James Perloff. James, I have to tell you, I, uh, I've heard of the Samson option, right? But I've never heard of the Hannibal Directive. Where would you like to begin? Because I'm glad you wrote this article. Uh, well, I'd like to talk about five things today. I'd like to talk about, first of all, uh, I want to put this um, recent Hamas incursion and the Israeli uh, retaliation in context. I'd like to talk about the history of Israeli false flags, number one. Number two, I'd like to talk about the history of Israeli penetration of Arab groups, which won't take much time at all. Uh, number three, I'd like to talk about something that's a, which might surprise much of your audience, which is that Abu Nadal, the greatest Arab uh, terrorist of the 1980s, was actually working for Israeli Mossad. Number four, I'd like to talk about the parallels between Abu Nadal and Osama bin Laden. And finally, I'd like to look at the October 7th incursion of Hamas into Israel and the subsequent retaliation and see if that does not fit into the pattern of many decades of Israeli false flags. Well, how about this, James? Uh, you take it away in one second. You have the floor, but let me read the opening paragraph here of your article dated October 30, 2023. Acts of terror have been carried out by people of many nationalities and ideologies. Okay, it's not just the Palestinians or the Israelis. By the way, let's recall what happened on 9-11. I think the Mossad was very much involved in what happened that day. But you write, contrary to the mainstream media's spin since World War II, Israel has probably been the world's number one sponsor of terror implemented by way of deception. Words from the motto of Mossad, Israel's intelligence service. These acts have almost invariably been executed in a way that Arabs would be blamed. That has included, for example, the King David Hotel bombing. All right, you take it away. By the way, I just heard, I'd never heard this before. I just heard that a day before 9-11, there was an army report issued, a U.S. army report issued saying that it is highly possible that Israel could execute an act of false flag terror in the United States and blame it on Arabs. James, I just heard that. I never heard that before until just the other day. It's a report that evidently came out the day before 9-11. Hmm. Yeah, I've seen that as well. Well, Israel has a uh, long history of false flag attacks. And uh, we could start with the uh, bombing of the King uh, Jordan Hotel in Jerusalem in 1946. Now, You'll remember from the Balfour Declaration, the British had promised the is a Zionist a homeland for Jews in Palestine. And um, so the British were governing Palestine, but uh, they were governing it from the King David Hotel in Jerusalem. Their military and diplomatic headquarters were there. And in 1946, the Ergun, which was a Israeli terrorist organization headed by Menachem Begin, entered the King David Hotel, disguised as Arabs, that's important, and they brought in explosives and blew up the hotel, uh, killing 91 people and mutilating more, many more. Now, after enough of these things happened, the British got the message and they, they left Israel and Israel proclaimed itself an independent state, which was the goal. Now, moving up to 1954, there's the Levant Affair, which is very well documented. You could even find an uh, article on it on, on uh, Wikipedia. Uh, Levant Affair, the uh, Israelis instructed their operatives in Egypt to blow up American and British civilian facilities so that it could be blamed on the Arabs and the Egyptians. However, the plot failed because the explosives blew up prematurely, and even Israel has been forced to admit that affair. 
But you bring it to 1967, you get a really egregious event, which is the attack of the Israelis on the USS Liberty, which was a reconnaissance ship in the Mediterranean. And the Israelis killed 34 American sailors, wounded more than 170. They attacked the ship initially with uh, napalm and rockets, and then they uh, fired torpedoes, one of which hit the Liberty, and they machine gunned the lifeboats, which is a war crime. Um uh, to, to, to kill the wounded. And we know from the intercepts of uh, uh, ground-to-air uh, Israeli communications that their orders were to sink the Liberty and leave no trace. And the purpose of this, you know, remember they have to, they, they flew in unmarked planes. The plan was to blame it on Egypt. Now, at that time, Israel was embroiled in the Six-Day War with Egypt and Jordan and Syria. And they want Israelis wanted America to come into the war on Israel's side and say that it was Egypt that had sunk the USS Liberty. But fortunately, through the heroism of its crew, it stayed afloat. And uh, Israel was forced to say, well, we mistook it for an Arab ship. Well, how could they mistake for an Arab ship? It's got English writing on it. It's got a huge American flag. There's no way they thought this was an Arab ship. But this was accepted nonetheless by uh Linda Baines Johnson. I have a post on on the Liberty on, on my website. However, uh, the best place to go, I really think, is the survivors' website. The the veterans of the USS Liberty. It's uh, gtr5.com. Okay, then you move it up to 1986. Can I interrupt? Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Let's, anytime. Anytime. Yeah. I think the uh, attack on the USS Liberty is probably the number one most important thing for folks to know about as it relates mm. to this relationship, this special relationship between Israel and the United States. And I'll loosely paraphrase, forgive the swearing, but uh, I believe the quote from Lyndon Baines Johnson was, as these men fought for their lives, as they were being attacked, as they reached out for help to Command Central, Lyndon B. Johnson's quote was, I want that goddamn boat at the bottom of the sea. Mm. Correct. Yeah, he was he was uh very much a part of it. You know, the Sixth Fleet uh tried to send rescue planes to uh uh defend the Liberty. And uh when the Israelis heard these planes were on the way, they like cowards, they ran away. You know, the US it's Liberty only had fifty caliber four fifty caliber machine guns to defend itself. And uh but the Israelis fled when they heard the US fleet was on its way. But Lyndon Baines Johnson ordered the US fighter jets to turn back. He did that twice um, in 1967, so uh, no attempt by him. Uh, I should compare that, by the way, to the non-existent attack of the Tonkin Gulf, August the 4th, 1964, when uh, Vietnamese torpedo boats allegedly attacked the U.S. Navy, yet that's been proven to be a false incident. There was no attack at all, no casualties, but when the Israelis caused 200 casualties on a U.S. ship, what does Lyndon Johnson do? He triples in 1968, he tripled U.S. military aid to Israel. No punishment whatsoever. All is forgiven. No problem. It's treason. It's just mm -hmm. more treason coming from the Oval Office. It seems to be something that's in the wide open now. Joe Biden commits treason against our nation every day. Right. Uh, but at least back in, what, 1967, during that attack, the treason wasn't quite so overt and people weren't so aware of it, although they did execute our president, John F. Kennedy, which is why Lyndon B. Johnson was in the Oval Office, right? He, otherwise, he shouldn't have been. He would have never been in the Oval Office had they not murdered our president. I don't think Kennedy would have reacted the same way as Johnson did, which yeah. was like, 
no reaction to the uh, attack on USS Liberty, which was given a a uh, one week investigation by uh, the Navy, whereas a, a real investigation would have required many months. But you can find all that out on the on gtr5.com, the the website for the USS Liberty survivors. All right, continue, please. Okay, so in 1986, U.S. soldiers were going to a uh, a discotheque uh, in Berlin called La Belle, and a bomb exploded in 1986, which killed two U.S. two U.S. soldiers and wounded dozens of others. Now, U.S. intelligence picked up uh, messages from Libya congratulating the attackers. However, you know, even though Ronald Reagan accepted that and he bombed Libya as a result, which is really, by the way, I should mention is the first blow of the U.S. in the war on terror. Viktor Ostrovsky, who uh, was in, uh, an officer in Mossad, and here's a, here's a beaten up copy of his book, The Other Side of Deception. In that book, he revealed that actually it was not the Libyans at all. The Israelis planted a transmitter in Libya, which sent these messages, which faked out U.S. intelligence, which faked out uh, Ronald Reagan. And uh, according to Ostrovsky, this was considered by the Mossad one of their greatest successes. Um I can pick it up to 1994. If you go to my my recent blog post on jamesperloff.net, against my most recent blog post from the Arab platoon to Hamas, Israel's Abu Nadal strategy, I've got a, a clip of Annie Machen, who was an officer in MI5. That's the British FBI. Now, in 1994, there was a bombing at the Israeli embassy. It didn't kill anyone. It injured a few folks. According to Annie Machen, MI5's own investigation revealed that the Mossad did this. You know, uh, the Palestinians were making great progress in England. They were getting a good reputation. They were conducting fundraising. Israel didn't like it. So they bombed their own embassy, according to MI5, and uh, blamed it on the Palestinians. But if you really want to go to the, the mother of them all, that's 9-11, and we wouldn't have time to go into it all. I'm sure you know a lot of this, but some of it, I might have some things that are new. For some some viewers, we got the dancing Israelis, right? These guys were photographing the bombing of the World Trade Center, the destruction, the cost of thousands of American lives, and they were jumping up and down with joy, high fiving each other and celebrating and dancing. But they're but people saw them and they're caught by the NYPD. Well, you know, I don't know if you know this, Sean, but every one of those five Israelis had plane tickets to leave America for Israel the very next day. And uh, here's another interesting um, fact. Uh, the owner of the company they worked for, which was Urban Moving Systems, Dominic Souter, closed his company on the day of 9-11 and then fled to Israel. But it's so much more than the dancing Israelis. There's Larry Silverstein. Now, Larry Silverstein acquired control of the World Trade Center just six weeks before 9-11. Can I add something, though? Hold on. Yeah. Well, let me just jump in. Before we move on too far here, I want to just add to the fact that those dancing Israelis were detained for some, I don't know, you might have the same, you might have the uh, right number, 74 days, something like that. And then they, months, were sent, yeah. it, then they were sent back to Israel where they went on a TV show and said our purpose was to document the event. Right. Literally on TV, they admitted to having foreknowledge of the event because how would one document the event of 9-11 without foreknowledge? So clearly the Mossad was involved at some level, and I would say at a very, very deep, important level. In fact, right. I think the Mossad pulled this off 
probably with the uh, CIA's help. Certainly NORAD stood down that day. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was either allowed to happen. Well, the point is, is that the Mossad was very much involved on 9-11 and they had foreknowledge. Right. And uh, how could the uh, Israelis be celebrating and dancing on the day of 9-11 when the FBI, it took them three days later to identify the hijackers as, as Muslims. So how did uh, Mossad know in advance and why didn't they warn us in advance of this attack taking place um, to look at the least possibility of their guilt? And I was talking about Larry Silverstein. He acquired the World Trade Center six weeks before 9-11, technically a 99-year lease. He only put up uh, $124 million, which is most of which was borrowed. Only $14 million was his own money. Yet he got an insurance payout of four point six billion. Now, how'd you like to get a uh, make a four point six billion dollars on a six week investment? That's what Larry, Larry Silverstein did. Now, normally, Larry, lucky Larry, as they call him, would have breakfast at the North Tower every morning at the restaurant called Windows on the World. But there's one day Larry didn't show up for breakfast. That was the day of nine eleven. His daughter and son, who both worked worked at the World Trade Center, didn't show up on nine eleven either. And this is something probably most of your viewers don't know. Larry Silverstein's partner in buying the World Trade Center was Frank Lowy. Now, Silverstein brought the bought the uh, on the ground buildings, but Lowy brought bought the uh, underground shopping concourse. And uh, like Silverstein, his ties to Israel are quite intimate. Uh, Lowy in nineteen forty six had been a member of the Haganah group, which was an, an Israeli. Ex- terrorist organization and then in 1948 he he joined the Golani Brigade which was involved in the brutal expulsion of Palestinians from uh, Palestine which was which we call the Nakba and I should mention that the uh, most brutal commander in the Golani Brigade was Errol Sharon and Errol Sharon on 9-11 was in fact the uh, Prime Minister of Israel. And I should also mention in regards to Frank Lowy, who also, by the way, did not show up on uh, at the World Trade Center on 9-11. Frank Lowy subsequently retired to Israel with a estimated worth of $8 billion. But there's some other things we should mention about Israel's connections to 9-11. Um, Zim Navigational was Israel's largest navigation firm and they had its american headquarters in the world trade center for 30 years and then one week before 9-11 they broke their lease moved out with their 200 employees and departed the world trade center in addition to this the security at the world trade center was handled by kroll associates now, Kroll Associates was run by Jules Kroll and Jeremy Kroll. Jules Kroll's wife, Lynn, was uh, the head of a large, actually a massive Israeli fundraising organization, the United Jewish Appeal. She was the vice chairman. Who do you think the chairman was? Who was Larry Silverstein? I should also mention uh, Logan Airport Security, where the two planes took off from that hit the World Trade Center. Logan Airport Security was run by ICTS International, 
which was owned by two Israeli internationals. In addition to that, who was put in charge in America in the investigation of 9-11 was Michael Chertov, the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division of the Department of Justice. Now, Chertov's parents were founding members of Israel. His mother was the first stewardess for LL, the Israeli airline, and uh, she was said to be a uh, Mossad agent. So how do you get Mossad people as being in charge of the investigation of 9-11 on the American side? On top of that, in the U.S. Defense Department, we have Richard Pearl, who is director of the Defense Department Policy Board. He was actually caught in 1970 by the NSA spying for Israel, but he was never charged. He never went to jail. Also, uh, the number two person in the Defense Department uh, after Donald Rumsfeld was Paul Wolfowitz, the Deputy Secretary of Defense. He lived in Israel as a teenager, and he was extremely pro-Israel. In addition to that, you have Douglas Fife, the Undersecretary of Defense, who had a constant stream of Israeli military officials coming in and out of his office. And uh, he was a guest of honor at the 100th anniversary of the Zionist Organization of America, where he received the prestigious Louis D. Brantis Award for his loyalty to Israel. Uh, I could go on and on about this. I could I could give you quotes from, from um, Pat Buchanan and others. But there's no question that Israel had its fingerprints all over 9-11. I want to talk about Arab infiltration uh, by Israeli groups. But before I do that, I should throw it back to you to see if you have any comment on what I've just said. Well, the only thing I would add is that uh, those Mossad agents dancing Israelis were detained for some 74 or 76 days, something like that. And then they Mm -hmm. were sent back to Israel where they appeared on a talk show and admitted that their purpose was to document the event. And at that point, we were taken for another round of questioning, this time related to our allegedly being members of Mossad. The fact of the matter is, we are coming from a country that experiences terror daily. Our purpose was to document the event. Our purpose was to document the event. Okay, that speaks directly to foreknowledge, of course, because how can anybody document an event that they didn't know was going to happen? So Israel and the Mossad were definitely part of what happened on 9-11. Uh, there's no question about that. And I have uh, links for my website article uh, regarding that. I wanted to talk a little bit about Israeli penetration of Arab groups. And uh, this is a quote from Alan Hart, who was the... Uh, Middle East specialist for the BBC Panorama. Uh, this is what he said in an interview in 2010, quote, I forgot, I'll get the quote and then link in my article. Quote, now it's not a secret. From almost the moment Israel was born, it had its agents penetrating every Arab government, every Arab military organization, and every Arab terrorist group. End quote. Now, I've got a book here. It's a 750-page book. It's not that old. Uh, it's called Rise and Kill First by 
uh, Israeli author Ronan Bergman. The subtitle is The History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. And here's what he says, quote, the Arab platoon was established when the Haganah, which was an um, Israeli terrorist organization, decided it needed a nucleus of trained fighters who could operate deep inside enemy lines, gathering information, carrying out sabotage, and targeted killing missions. The training of its men, most of them Jewish immigrants from Arab lands, included commando tactics and explosives, and also intensive study of Islam and Arab customs, end quote. So here you have an Israeli organization which is completely fluent in Arabic, completely knowledgeable of Islam, which is designed to infiltrate Arab groups. And I've got another book. Um, when I was researching 9-11, a, a book I never got to finish. This Half-Truth by Farrakh Murr, who was a Pakistani author, 500-page book. And uh, in this book, he describes a uh, event that occurred in the 1980s when the president of Pakistan, General Haq, that's H-A-Q, was entertaining a famous Pakistani journalist named Mirza, M-I-R-Z-A. And Mirza noticed that the the president hack got up and he was talking to two tribesmen and they were speaking the traditional Pashtun um, language, which is used by Afghanis and Pakistanis. And they were dressed in Pashtun costumes and they wore long birds, beards, excuse me. And uh, Mirza was surprised because usually general hack would never talk to lower people. He usually could find himself to, people at the upper, upper level of society. And here's what uh, General Hack said to Mirza after these two tribesmen or alleged tribesmen departed. He said, um, do you know who they were? They were Israeli Mossad. They're training the Afghans in Afghanistan, end quote. So you've got this whole history of Israeli Mossad penetrating Arab in even Afghanistan groups. Um, but the main thing I'm going to concentrate on and the main focus of my blog post is Abu Nidal, who is considered the greatest Arab terrorist of the 1980s. And I start my blog post with a very short clip, it's taken out of a longer clip of uh, Oliver North, who was uh, being questioned by Congress as to why he had installed this very expensive, extraordinary uh, security system in his home. And Oliver North replies that he did it uh, because Abu Nidal, he calls the greatest assassin in the world, has threatened his life. Now, um, uh, here's what people need to know. Abu Nidal, considered the greatest Arab terrorist of the 1980s, I've got a book here, Abu Nidal, the, A Gun for Hire by Patrick Seal. Patrick Seal was a British author, a specialist in the Middle East. And he found out that Abu Nidal was, in fact, working for the Israeli Mossad. Um, example, uh, Abu Iyad, who was the intelligence chief for 
the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, requested an audience with Patrick Seal in Tunis in 1990. And he told Patrick Seal, there's no question that Abu Niyad is, is uh, Abu Nidal is working for Israel. Everything he does hurts Palestine, helps Israel. He's killed all of the pat, the top diplomats for the PLO. And, uh, so Patrick Seal took this under consideration. What do you think happened to Abu Niyad? who gave him this interview. Well, he was shortly forthwith murdered on orders from Abu Nadal. And uh, Patrick Seal also has quotes from the top officials in the CIA, German intelligence, French intelligence, Jordanian intelligence, and I have the quotes in my article. Uh, but they all agreed that Abu Nadal, the alleged Palestinian terrorist, was in fact working for Israel's Mossad. And uh, I want to point out a, a coincidence of dates. In 1977, the Likud, which is Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, party, the Likud grew out of the Ergun, which was uh, an Israeli terrorist organization uh, headed by Menachem Begin, in 1977, Menachem Begin became the Prime Minister of Israel. And uh, in 1977 is also when uh, Abu Nidal began his terrorist operations. And at the same time, interestingly enough, Hollywood began its depiction of Palestinians as terrorists. Uh, for example, in 1977, there's a movie called Black Sunday. And in this movie, the Palestinians planned to blow up all the fans at the Super Bowl with um, um, a shrapnel bomb, which is ridiculous because Palestinians couldn't even get out of Palestine, let alone go to the Super Bowl. But who rescues them? According to the movie, it's an agent of Mossad. An agent of Mossad saves 80,000 American lives. And then this continued throughout the 1980s. You had the, the movie... Um, uh, Delta Force with Chuck Norris. I like Chuck Norris a lot. But in Delta Force, uh, the Palestinians uh, hijack an American airliner. And uh, then the the Delta Force rescues the, the hostages and brings them to safety in, in Israel. And this continued throughout the 1980s. Again and again, Palestinians were depicted as terrorists and uh, the Israelis as our heroes. And I got to mention a reason for this. Uh, the PLO had given up on violence against Israel. And the reason for that was Israel had won the 1967 war against Syria, Egypt, and Jordan. They again won the 1973 Yom Kippur war where they defeated the forces of Syria and Egypt. And the PLO said, look, if the foreign nations with tanks and air forces can't defeat Israel, what chance do we have to overthrow them with small arms? So the PLO from that time on was always pursuing peaceful negotiations with the Israelis. But the Israeli government under Menachem Begin did not want negotiations with the Palestinians. They had stolen land from Palestine uh, in these wars. 
and they didn't want to give it back. So it's very important for them to portray to the world that Palestinians were terrorists and therefore Israel could not uh, engage in negotiations. Now, I'm going to give you some examples. Okay, in 1982, Israel invaded Lebanon, which was defenseless at that point. There was no Hezbollah there at that time. They they invaded with 1,250 tanks, 1,500 armored personnel carriers, air bombardment, naval bombardment, and they murdered 17,000 Lebanese and Palestinians. But before that attack took place, the U.S. Secretary of State Alexander Haig advised the Israeli government, look, if you're going to do this, you need an, uh, an international pretext for this invasion. Well, who come to res- the rescue of Israel? It's Abu Nidal. He had his men attempt an assassination on the Israeli ambassador in London, uh, Shlomo Argov, who was expendable, according to Nakam Begin, because he was actually in favor of a peaceful negotiation with the Palestinians. He was expendable. Now, Abu Nadal's men botched the assassination attempt. They wounded Argov, but they didn't kill him. But if you look at history books, the official reason given by Israel for invading Lebanon and killing 17,000 people was this assassination attempt by Abu Nadal. Now, Lebanon and the PLO had nothing to do with that assassination attempt. It was all the work of Abu Nadal who took credit for it. But the um, the uh, chief of staff of Israel's military, uh, Raful Atwan, said, Abu Sh- um, uh, Nidal, Abu Sh- Nidal, we have to strike the PLO. So they went in and attacked them, and they never went after Abu Nadal. Now, Seal, Patrick Seal, again, this is a book... Um, a Gun for Hire, published in 1992, a long forgotten book, it gives many other examples. In 1985, I'm quoting uh, him now, quote, Austria and Italy were the two European countries with which the PLO had the closest relations. With their encouragement, a European-Palestinian dialogue had been developed satisfactorily, end quote. So what happens? Right after that, Abu Nudal and I can remember this myself from the headlines at the time, Abu Nadal had his young fanatics doped up on, uh, on amphetamines, attacked the Rome and Vienna airports uh, with um, uh, rifles and grenades, and they killed um, 18 civilians and wounded 110. And uh, this was something that could not in any way help Palestine. Uh, then Cyprus, again quoting Patrick Seal, quote, Cyprus had long been sympathetic to the Palestinians, having supported them during the Israel siege of Baru in 1982, giving them a haven when the Arab state expelled them. Cyprus seemed more committed to the Palestinian cause than many Arab countries, end quote. What happened? May the 11th, 1988, Abu Nadal's organization detonates a bomb in Cyprus, killing 15 Cypriots. After that, Cyprus uh, favor towards the Palestinians disappeared. Then Sudan, uh, according to Seal, he described Sudan as, quote, even more consistently pro-Palestinian than Cyprus. Now, Abu Nadal's men then attacked uh, Sudan, 
They attacked a hotel and a restaurant with machine guns and grenades. They killed seven people, wounded 721. The victims' nationalities included Sudanese, British, French, Americans, Swiss, Swiss, Poland, Polish, no uh, Israelis. So now Sudanese support for Palestine declines. Here's a big one. Uh, Silk notes, quote, Greece was a European country most sympathetic to the Palestinian cause and its prime minister, Andreas Papandreou, was a le- European leader who most effectively defended the Arabs against Israel's charge of terrorism. And quote, so what does Abu Nudal do on July the 11th, 1988? His men, armed with machine guns and hand grenades, attacked a Greek cruise ship with hundreds of tourists on board. They killed nine. They wounded 80. Now, how could anyone think this is going to help the cause of Palestine? Uh, the Greeks were furious that uh, Palestinians had destroyed their tourist trade, and the uh, the government of Papandreou then fell from power. Um, but the worst thing that Abu Nadal did occurred in late 1987 into 1988. In December 1987, the Palestinians rose up against the Israelis, uh, trying to take back their freedom. This is called the first uh, Intifada. Now, what Abu Nadal did at that time was he massacred almost half of his followers, almost all Palestinians. And uh, in November 1987, he murdered just one night. Uh, in November 1987, he murdered 171 of his own Palestinian followers, claiming that they were spies for foreign intelligence. He lined them up, they were blindfolded, machine gunned, and dropped into a ditch, many of them still alive and struggling for life. And that, of course, prevented them from joining the Palestinian Intifada. Now, Hey, James, why don't you remind the audience what the uh, Israeli Mossad motto is? Could you do that for us, please? Uh, Sure. It's by way of deception, uh, which is uh, the uh, part of the title of... uh, the book of the other side of deception by former Israeli intelligence officer. Victor but complete Strassi. the motto. Would you complete the motto by way of deception? What make war by way of deception? That's right. By right. way of deception, thou shalt make war. And that right. is what we're learning about here. That's why we're sharing this information. Uh, for those that don't know it, it may seem just like a litany of crimes from one guy. What's the big deal? He was Mossad. He was Mossad. He was Mossad. He was Mossad. All right. So that's what we're trying to do in this interview is just share the truth about the terror emanating from Israel through false flags time and time and time again, including what happened on 9-11, friends. So that's what we're up against. All roads go back to House of Rothschild, the Balfour Declaration and Israel. All right. Mm -hmm. So this blind loyalty to Israel, right? This Nikki Haley, give them a blank check. No questions asked. This is the root of the criminality of our nation and the traitors within our nation who say everything for Israel, no questions asked at every turn. Mm -hmm. That's why we're sharing this history, because people who don't understand history are condemned to repeat it, James. And the whole world seems whipsawed into just war after war after war because of this thing that happened on October 7th in Israel. 
more war, more war. It can never end. We can never have peace. And Abu Nadal's job was to never allow there to be peace so that Israel could continue to take Palestinian land. Okay, That is the model here, correct? That's absolutely correct. And it continued. Um, you know, it seems like terrorism requires a poster boy. So the poster boy in the 1980s was Abu Nadal. But after he started murdering almost half of his own Palestinian followers, people defected from his organization and it's very hard for him to uh, recruit new people. And so terrorism needed a new poster boy. And for a brief period of time, it appears that poster boy was Ramzi Youssef, who was the alleged mastermind of the 1993 attempted bombing of the, the World Trade Center. Now, if you look at my notes for my article on, on the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center, you'll find there were many, many Israeli connections to that. We won't go into that here. Uh, but Ramzi Youssef, he was to be the new poster boy for terrorism, was uh, he was stopped in that role in 1995 because he was arrested in Pakistan. So in 1996, Osama bin Laden becomes a new poster boy for terror terrorism. And, you know, in 1986, Osama bin Laden declared jihad on the United States. I just want to point out that his reasons for declaring jihad were very, very flimsy. He said that his main reason was that U.S. troops were in Arabia, which is where Mecca is, and therefore infidels were desecrating the sacred land of Arabia. But I want to point out a few things. First of all, it was Osama bin Laden's own government, the Saudi government, which invited U.S. troops into Saudi Arabia to fight Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War of 1991. Um, uh, and uh, in addition to that, uh, you might recall that uh, uh, Saddam Hussein had been part of the Mujahideen, which was the Arab group fighting or the Afghanistan group fighting the Soviets in the 1980s. Well, they were financed by the United States. And in fact, Osama bin Laden himself was trained by U.S. Special Forces. So it's kind of strange that he turned on his own benefactors so quickly. Oh, and by the way, James, as you know, I think most of the audience probably knows by now, Osama bin Laden was CIA. He had a CIA mm -hmm. connection at any rate, and I think his code name was Tim Osmond. Yeah, another thing about uh, Osama bin Laden, his older brother, Salem bin Laden, was a partner of George W. Bush in the Arbusto uh, Energy Company in Texas. George W. Bush, of course, was the president at the time of 9-11. So Osama bin Laden has all kinds of connections to the West, which raises a question mark. Um but uh, I want to mention some uh, some connections between uh, Abu Nidal and Osama bin Laden. There's a lot of parallels, and you'll find these in my article. But they were both very wealthy. Um, Abu Nidal was said to be worth 400 million. Osama bin Laden, 250 million. They both had bank accounts in the same bank, the BCCI bank. Both men operated out of desert compounds where they radicalized young Muslims into terrorists. Also, despite his vast wealth, according to uh, Patrick Seal, even though it's worth almost half a billion dollars, 
Abu Nadal never gave one dime to the Palestinian people who were suffering so much. And in my own research, I never found evidence that the very rich uh, Osama bin Laden, despite his proclaimed solidarity with Palestine, never gave a dime to the Palestinians either. And uh, something else that's very important. Abu Nadal never attacked Israel, and Israel never attacked uh, Abu Nadal. Likewise, Osama bin Laden, he spoke against Israel, but he never attacked Israel, and Israel never attacked Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden only attacked American targets, our overseas embassies in uh, Africa, for example. He could have attacked Israel overseas embassies if he wanted to, but no, he only attacked American embassies, which is exactly what Israel wanted to bring America into the war against its enemies. Well, and by the and, way, Abu Nadal was never brought to justice. Right. So imagine if what we're told about him is true and he was a kingpin terrorist from Palestine. Wouldn't he be the number one hit on Israel's list? Wouldn't that be a trophy they would want? They would want his head on the wall, right? Right. But this is this is the, the, the amazing thing. Abu Nadal began his terrorist activities in 1977, including assassinations, massacres, and airline, airline hijackings. In 25 years, the combined resources of American, British, European, and Israeli intelligence was never able to find the guy, and all the combined military resources we had were ever, never able to bring him to justice. Uh, he was finally taken out in 2002 by Saddam Hussein's intelligence service in Iraq. It was the Iraqis who took him out in 2002, but ironically, in 2003, we invaded Iraq. But it's the same thing with uh, Osama bin Laden. Uh, I want to read you a quote that most of your viewers have probably not heard. This is from Gary Bernstein, who is a U.S. field commander in Afghanistan and the hunt for bin Laden. He wrote this in his book, Jawbreaker, which you can find probably in your local library. Quote, day and night, I kept thinking, we need U.S. soldiers on the ground. We need them to do the fighting. We need them to block a possible escape of al-Qaeda into Pakistan. I'd sent my request for 800 U.S. Army Rangers. I was still waiting for a response. I repeated to anyone at the headquarters would listen. We need Rangers now. The opportunity to get Bin Laden is slipping away. I'd made it clear in my report that our Afghan allies were hardly anxious to get at al-Qaeda in Tora Bora. So why was the U.S. military looking for excuses not to act decisively? Why would they want to leave something that was so important to an unreliable Afghan army that had been cobbled together at the last moment. This was the opportunity we'd hoped for when we launched this mission. Our advantage was quickly slipping away, end quote. Now, a little later in the book, Bernstein writes this. He's got Bin Laden cornered, all right, in Al-Qaeda, but suddenly the Pentagon decides to transfer him to South America. Here's what he writes, quote, Now that we finally had Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda cadres trapped in the mountains, why was headquarters pulling us out? Why was Washington hesitant about committing troops to get bin Laden? These were questions that keep me up at at night. End quote. Gary Bernstein, the commander of U.S. forces to, uh, assigned to get bin Laden. Now, you have to look at this. They didn't want to get Abu Nadal for 25 years because he was giving Israel an excuse not to negotiate for the giving away of any territories because Palestinians are terrorists. Same thing with bin Laden. Ten years after 9-11, 
we still hadn't caught the guy despite all our intelligence resources because uh, if we got bin Laden right away, Americans would have said, well, we got the guy that caused 9-11. Why do we need all these other wars in the Middle East? It's pretty clear that there's a parallel here. I'm going to get up to the Hamas incursion of, of October 2023, the recent event. But before I do, let me throw it back to you, Sean. Yeah, let's wrap this up here in the next five minutes, because I just want people to understand uh, and remember that uh, we've got the goods on this. We already know all of this, right? Because of that Aaron Russo interview with Alex Jones back in the day. Right. For those who haven't watched it, go watch it. Listen mm-hmm. to what Aaron Russo, the Hollywood producer, told Alex Jones would happen. He had a Rockefeller friend who told him that there would be an event in New York City. This is prior to 9-11. Right. And as the result of that event, U.S. troops would go around the world They'd end up in Afghanistan. They'd have to hunt through caves looking for the boogeyman terrorists. And Rockefeller laughed. He said, they're not going to find anything because there's nobody there to find. Okay, it's all premeditated. 9-11 was an inside job, and it was blamed on these forces so that we would be whipsawed into wars in the Middle East that the American people would otherwise never, ever support. So go listen to that, Aaron Russo. And by the way, Russo also said it's all part of the plan for their new world order, their one world government. They want to chip and track and trace everybody. The ultimate payoff for the bankers being that y'all will take the mark of the beast, the chip. So it's Mm -hmm. all part of the plan. And I just wanted to share that with the audience. Aaron Russo told us the truth. And you know what? Alex Jones has been right about an awful lot over the years, James. That's very, very true, despite criticism that people have made of him. Well, um, regarding Hamas and this October the 7th, 2023 invasion of Israel, uh, Ron Paul explained, and I've got the clip, it's a two, just a two-minute clip, that Israel created Hamas. And here Yasser Arafat of the PLO said about Hamas, uh, quote, a secret Israeli organization functions inside Shin Bet, which is the Israeli FBI, in cooperation with Hamas, and their aim is to disrupt the peace process, is behind these attacks, meaning suicide bombings, and many others. End quote. In other words, Israel created Hamas, uh, again, like Abu Nidal, to create terrorist events that would keep Israel, give Israel an excuse not to engage in negotiation. And if you watch my most recent post um, on... Uh, the uh, Hamas Israel event of 2023. I have clips, short clips from three former IDF soldiers, Israeli defense soldiers, who served on the uh, the border between Gaza and Israel. They explained that this is the most secure border in the world. It's littered with observation posts. It's the most high tech observation post in the world, and yet uh, we're supposed to believe that somehow on October the seventh. Everybody was asleep at the switch. Uh, all their their uh, high-tech surveillance shut down. And somehow Hamas was able to enter Israel at 15 different locations and nobody knew about it. And there was a delay of, of close to seven hours before Israel defense forces responded where normally it only take five minutes for tanks and helicopter gunships to arrive. Um, this raises the question of whether Hamas has Israeli penetrators. And I just want to quote Vanessa Beasley. 
and is uh, a journalist who specializes in the Middle East. She says, quote, Hamas founder Moses Hassan Youssef was a spy for Zionist intelligence from 1997 to 2007 before being given U.S. residency. Shin Bet, again, that's the Israeli FBI, considers him the most valuable source within Hamas leadership. The information Youssef supplied exposed numerous Hamas shells, cells and assisted Israel in hunting down many militants and incarcerating even his own father, Hamas leader Sheikh Hassan Youssef. I'm just going to mention something here, uh, Sean. Israel is bombing schools, hospitals, churches, claiming that they know exactly where Hamas terrorists are. If that's true, then why is it that on October the 7th, they didn't know the location of a single Hamas terrorist? And why did they wait so long? It just doesn't make any sense. This was their Pearl Harbor. This is the event they needed in order to destroy Gaza. And how could Hamas leaders possibly not know? Remember when I was talking about 1982 with the destruction of Lebanon, where in retaliation for one wounded Israeli, Israel murdered 17,000 Lebanese and Palestinians. How could Hamas leaders possibly believe that this incursion would not result in a totally disproportionate reaction, which is what we've seen ever since uh, the event? So I can't prove it, but I would suggest to you that there was cooperation on both sides in order to create a pretext for a false flag that would give Israel the pretext to destroy Gaza, which, you know, they're a poor country. They can't rebuild all these hospitals and schools and mosques and churches. Uh, They can't rebuild it. Their goal is to turn this into another Nakba, to drive 2.5 million Palestinians out of Gaza, rebuild it, as luxury uh, beachfront hotels for Israelis to live in. And then they can turn all their attention onto driving the remaining Israel uh, Palestinians out of the West Bank. This is so obvious for the, if you study the history of Israel, what they're up to. It's evil. We should not support it. And I also want to point out, this is most important. Uh, we're risking World War III here. Um, if Hezbollah should attack with missiles and kill intentionally, accidentally, U.S. soldiers. The U.S. could uh, not run by Joe Biden. He's seen now. His handlers could order the U.S. aircraft carriers to attack Hezbollah. Hezbollah is controlled by Iran. Now, Iran could counterattack with missiles, which might damage or sink a U.S. aircraft carrier. The U.S. could then invoke the NATO treaty, which says that if one member is under attack, all members are under attack. This would bring England and Germany and France and other European countries into a war against Iran. Iran would then invoke its alliance with China and Russia. And, you know, it, for World War I, it only took one incident, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, to bring about a world war that killed tens of millions of people from Canada to Russia. We don't want that to happen. I greatly encourage Hezbollah to exercise restraint. What we need is diplomatic and economic sanctions against Israel to such an extent, an exposure of its crime to such an extent, that it will be forced to call a ceasefire. I don't want to see this explode into World War III, but I think that Benjamin Netanyahu is just psychopathic enough to want that to happen.
Yeah, and I just want to round out the conversation by reminding mm -hmm. people what Zionism is. For those that don't know, James concludes his article by saying, and for those Western Christians who think they have an obligation to stand with Israel, no matter the cost, James suggests further reading on his post about Christian Zionism. You know, when you hear people like Ben Shapiro foaming at the mouth to give everything to Israel, no matter the cost, it really starts to wake people up. That's why there's a fissure right now. There's a division. There's a divide over at the Daily Wire between people like Ben Shapiro and people like Candace Owens. Right. Candace Owens pointing at the atrocities in Gaza saying, hey, these are war crimes. So it's not anti-Semitic to point out the war crimes being committed against the two million people trapped in Gaza, James. So that's what we're trying right. to do here. We're not taking sides. We're just saying, hey, in a just world, that's not inverted and upside down and completely insane. The whole world would be angry about what's happening to Gazans on the back of this October 7th official story. Right, exactly as they would be outraged if it happened to any other country. Well, you'd think, you'd think. But uh, for some reason, there are rabid Zionists who foam at the mouth to lay waste to Gaza and to never stop. They want to turn it into concrete. They want to turn it into a parking lot. And we're just praying that cooler minds prevail because yes. at the very least, I don't want that blood on my hands, nor do you, James. Absolutely. All righty. I will leave a link to the article below, guys. We'll show James' website one more time here. This is the article as we scroll right back to the top. You can read it yourself. Go back and play those clips from the Arab platoon to Hamas, Israel's Abu Nadal strategy. Abu Nadal being one of the chief terrorists and frankly, bloodthirsty murderers in the history of the world, certainly in recent history. James, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the education and for the history here. This is just a history lesson. That's all this is. It's not anti-Semitic to have a history lesson that says Israel's done some pretty shady stuff over the decades. <laughs> That's not anti-Semitic, is it? No, the truth is never racist. The truth is never racist. All right, guys, the link is below. Our guest has been author James Perloff. James, thank you very much. Thank you, Sean. God All bless. Right. God bless. Friends, thanks so much for tuning in. We appreciate you so very much. May God bless you and yours. And I'll remind you every single day for free. Check us out for free at sgtreport.com. That is the antidote to corporate propaganda and all of those Zionist mockingbird mainstream media lies 24-7. Bye-bye. The programs they're putting in place are not for your benefit for your destruction. Financially, the U.S. is a banana republic, and morally, judicially, the United States is a banana republic. I mean, we've arrived.